podcast. I'm Rebecca Watterson, a researcher on this project and PhD researcher at Ulster University. Epidemic Belfast is a podcast and website from Ulster University's School of History that raises challenging and difficult questions about Northern Ireland's medical history. On today's podcast, I am joined by Dr. Robin Atchison, researching poverty, poor relief and public health in Belfast, 1800 to 1851. And Dr. Atchison completed her PhD at Queen's University, Belfast in 2018. Um, She teaches and writes on Irish history, women's history and the social history of medicine. And today we are going to be talking about medicine in the Belfast workhouse. Thank you for joining us, Robin. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much for having me, yeah. Uh, can you tell us a bit about what you are researching and why? So I'm really interested in the, the stories of ordinary people, particularly the poor. And I love kind of looking at the side of Belfast's history that hasn't been as well covered as the political stuff or the religious stuff. It's more about that kind of social history, um, possibly because <clears throat> my family background, you know, my family tree worked in the mills and the shipyards and everything. So probably that's where it comes from a little bit. But uh, working on my PhD and getting to know what Belfast was like for the poor, it's just something that, yes, it's hard going sometimes because it can be quite depressing. But it is something that I love. I just love kind of researching it and finding out more of these stories of these these real people. Can you tell us what were the options for the sick poor in Belfast before the opening of the workhouse? So before the opening of the workhouse, there was a very rudimentary kind of public health system in Ireland at the time. And it was very scattergun in approach so in some places it worked really well in other places there wasn't really any free medical relief. Belfast is quite unusual because it's this kind of new urban town um, at the beginning of the 19th century. The first organisation that was providing free medical relief was actually the poor house of the Belfast Charitable Society so it opened in 1774 and right from its opening it set aside beds for the sick poor and organised medical attendance on them. Also organised a kind of dispensary system where it would give outpatient advice and treatment. And this is quite unusual. A lot of charitable societies eventually went on to provide medical care, but the Belfast Society seems to have kind of baked that right in from the beginning. That was always an intention. So the poor house is really the only option for the sick poor um, for about 20 odd years until we get to the right to the very end of the 18th century and then we see a number of institutions that are formed so we have the lying in hospital which is for poor women in childbirth Um, so it opens in 1794 completely voluntary you know fundraising um, completely run by donations and quite unusually for the time also managed by a committee of ladies Uh, so other Maternity hospitals in Dublin, which had preceded Belfast and others around Britain, were generally run by either doctors or a men's committee um, in conjunction with the physicians. But Belfast was wholly run by ladies. Um, so it's quite unusual. Um, it also had a very low maternal mortality rate compared to other maternity hospitals. Um, So Belfast was about 
2.9 per thousand and Dublin and Glasgow hospitals would be about 13 um, or so. So quite unusual in that respect. Um, one of the things that's very typical about Belfast is that it has a fever hospital as well. So a fever hospital just dealt with infectious disease and it was funded partly by donations and partly by government. Um, so it opened again at the end of the 18th century, 1797, um, and it ran the hospital itself, also a dispensary for outpatient health, and it oversaw a vaccination programme among the children of the poor against smallpox. So we have these few institutions that are springing up right at the turn of the century, um, but they're still quite small um, and they're not in any way able to cope with the entire group of sick poor. And then we have, um, as you've already covered in, in your episode of the podcast, we have the, the Lunatic Asylum that opens then later um, in the 19th century. Um, and as again, kind of for the poor um, who fall into that category. So there's a few of these institutions. There's also a few kind of smaller charities that are looking at helping the, the circumstances that poor people are living in to prevent them from getting ill. So the Destitute Sick Society is one of those. Um, and these are very small. They haven't left much of a record behind, um, but it would be things like providing food, blankets, um, sources of heating, things like that to try and help people from getting poor enough that they needed one of the hospitals. Well, how did the workhouse cater for the sick in its early years? So the Belfast workhouse opened in 1841. Um, and it was one of the larger models of workhouse. Um, so it could, when it first opened, it could hold up to a thousand uh, paupers. And from its opening, it also set aside beds for the sick. So it could hold a thousand paupers and it had six beds for the sick, um, which straight away is probably not going to be enough. <laughs> um, in its first decade, the Board of Guardians, who were the kind of managing board of the workhouse. Um, there were four of them who were actually physicians. Um, so there was some kind of medical knowledge on the board, uh, which really helped when it came to making some decisions about medicine within the workhouse. Um, initially, there was one doctor, one medical attendant for the whole institution. Um, then they hire an apothecary because they need help um, dispensing medicines. Um, and really, what the medical attendants did was they looked after anyone who was already in the workhouse who had become ill or maybe they'd been admitted to the workhouse while already ill um, so you had to be resident of the workhouse in order to get any of this medical attention um, and they also kind of issued general advice so um, things like making sure that children who had measles were kind of kept separate from healthy children um, things like better, they were always uh, asking for better ventilation um, and kind of more hygienic practices. And really the people that were carrying out these tasks were actually other paupers who were kind of appointed as nurses. So they were the ones that were putting this into practice. Um, so we know that in the early years, there's a real wide range of conditions and illnesses that are mentioned by the medical attendants. So we have things like asthma, consumption, um, things like that. And we see a lot of skin complaints um, in particular. So, and again, that's kind of part and parcel of living in kind of cramped, overcrowded, unhygienic circumstances. 
uh, that we see a lot of ulcers and um, skin infections and things. So dealing with anything infectious was usually kind of the priority. Um, the poor were very susceptible to these diseases um, because of their living conditions. And once in the workhouse, they were also kind of cramped. It was overcrowded. Um, so if there was any infectious disease, it spread like wildfire. And it soon kind of overwhelmed the, the very small in-house infirmary that they had set aside. So in its early years, it's kind of getting to grips with what it means to, to look after this pauper population and, and realizing that actually we need a little bit more of a focus on the, the health side of the workhouse. Um, so that's kind of something that you see in the first kind of four, four or five years of the workhouse workhouse fit into the network of hospitals and charities that were catering for the sick poor? So initially the workhouse was quite happy to just look after the people in the workhouse. Um, whenever, as I said, the workhouse opened in 1841. In 1843 there was an outbreak of fever in Belfast and what we think this probably was was typhus, um, but fever is kind of a catch-all term that they used at the time. Um, so during this outbreak, the guardians of the workhouse realised that uh, the pre-existing network of all the hospitals and all the charities weren't really coping with this outbreak of disease. And they thought their role was as backup. They were kind of the auxiliary support. So what they did was they built kind of huge sheds, um, kind of canvas tents as well on the workhouse grounds and would take convalescent patients. So people who had been treated in the fever hospital, but were getting a little bit better. Um, so they could treat them there um, before they had to go back to their homes and back into the community. And that's really how the guardians saw their role. But the legislation changed then later in 1843. Um, so there was an amendment to the Poor Law Act, which had set up the workhouse system. And this amendment gave boards of guardians responsibility for infectious diseases. So they became kind of responsible for dealing with any outbreaks um, of anything contagious. And this also meant that they could build their own fever hospital. So the workhouse built its own fever hospital, uh, which was called the Union Fever Hospital. And the old hospital in a town kind of repurposed itself. So it became a general medical and surgical hospital. Um, so it was called the town hospital or the general hospital. And these two hospitals, um, although they kind of switched roles at this point, they eventually became two of the, the biggest hospitals in Belfast. So the Union Workhouse Hospital eventually became Belfast City Hospital. Um, and the old uh, pre-existing hospital, which became the general, eventually became the Royal Victoria Hospital. Uh, so the workhouse then kind of the, the guardians had to take on this new responsibility. So they opened their new workhouse, they opened their new workhouse hospital, and then they kind of were working with the people who had already been involved in the other hospitals and the other charities in the town. There was quite a lot of overlap between who was sitting as a guardian and their kind of tenure on charitable societies as well. So one of the kind of key ways in which they interacted was um, Hospitals 
would generally kind of swap patients if there was a problem. So if there was a lot of uh, measles or dysentery, for example, in one hospital, they would say, we have too many dysentery patients. Can you take our smallpox patients? Because we can't deal with both at the same time. So you see some of that kind of um, kind of offloading different patients to each other um, and that kind of thing. And we also see once the general hospital is established in 1848, it decides because it's purely funded through donations, it's no longer possible for them to treat venereal patients. Um, so patients with sexually transmitted infections, mostly syphilis at this stage. Um, so they ask the workhouse hospital if they would take the, the syphilis, syphilitic patients instead. Um, and then the workhouse kind of has to then absorb that responsibility as well. Um, so there's a steady flow of, of patients with syphilis that are being treated in the workhouse hospital. Um, and looking kind of in, at the end of the 1840s from when this decision comes into play, we can see that there's a, in any one week, there's around 20 odd patients being treated for syphilis. Um, interestingly, though, although a lot of the treatment for syphilis and a lot of the attention for syphilis was placed on women, um, interestingly, in the Belfast workhouse, Yes, they separated these women from the general population. They kind of held them in part of the workhouse where they also put unmarried mothers and anyone who was um, suspected of being a prostitute. Um, so they were kind of spatially segregated from everybody else. But if it was a man who was in the workhouse hospital needing treatment for syphilis, after he had been treated, uh, the workhouse would bill him for the cost of that treatment. So the men actually had to pay for the treatment. And at this stage, that's the only example that I've come across of someone having to pay for the medical treatment in the workhouse. It's it's very unusual, but um, it just kind of shows this, I don't know, this ideology of um, who was really to blame in a way for, for syphilis, um, which is, is really interesting. How did the famine and outbreaks of disease during the famine year impact medical relief in the workhouse? The first notifications that there was going to be some kind of period of distress was right at the end of 1845. So at this stage, the workhouse had only been open kind of four years. It was still finding its fate. It was still kind of trying to work out how best it could use its resources and how to run the, the workhouse. And at this point, it had never been totally full. Um, as we get into 1846, when the second potato crop fails, um, it becomes much more evident that this is something that's going to affect Belfast. And although Belfast as a port town had other food sources, it wasn't wholly reliant on the potato like other parts of Ireland, but the price of all food went up. So people couldn't afford to buy the food that they would have been eating uh, before the, the famine years. And also, the industry at the time, which is kind of burgeoning in Belfast at this stage, there was an industrial recession um, that coincided in 1847 with kind of the worst year of the famine. So there's suddenly hundreds and thousands of people that have lost their jobs or they've been put on kind of half time. So their wages have been halved overnight. Um, so you've, it's a very different kind of distress than we see in the kind of the rural western parts of Ireland. Um, but it's still distress nonetheless. Um, 
And Belfast, because it is a port, because it has all these mills and factories, people come to Belfast to try and find an escape. Um, and that just means there's more and more people cramming into the town. So the workhouse, it kind of builds on the cooperation with other institutions, other hospitals that it had been doing beforehand. Um, during the outbreak of typhus in 1847, it swapped patients with the general hospital, um, sent smallpox and dysentery patients there. It also worked with the Belfast Board of Health, which was set up um, to offer kind of more accommodation for people who were ill or convalescing. Um, but it kind of had to deal with mortality on a whole new level during 1847. So between 20 and 30 people were dying a week in the workhouse. Um, the highest was the first week of July in 1847 when 84 deaths were recorded. So it was kind of really trying circumstances for the guardians to, to work through. We also know from statistics at the time um, that there was an awareness in Belfast that it did suffer more from infectious diseases than elsewhere. They didn't know why, but doctors at the time, particularly um, Dr. Andrew Malcolm, who was very interested in kind of public health measures, um, he calculated that the proportion of fever deaths to all deaths in Ireland was about one in 16. So one in 16 deaths was because of an infectious disease. But in Belfast, that was one in six. So they recognised that this was a Belfast problem, but they didn't really know what to do about it. Um, the workhouse, how it tackled it, was it became very focused on separating patients. So um, only having patients with the same disease kept in the same ward. Um, and that was kind of how they tried to, to deal with it. Um, they got through the outbreak of fever in 1847 and then 1848, um, cholera arrived. So Belfast um, had already been through the 1832 outbreak of cholera. And in 1848, they kind of knew that cholera was approaching. They were preparing for it. They were setting aside quarantine areas within the workhouse. Um, they were also putting in place notices to encourage people to actually come to the hospital. People were very, still very afraid of hospitals and the workhouse, but they were actively encouraging clergymen and factory owners to encourage people to know what the symptoms of cholera were. And as soon as they were sick, to, to try and get some, some help. So when cholera did strike, um, the first case arrived in the workhouse in December, 1848. Um, it, they kind of leapt into action because they had these plans uh, ready. And again, they worked with the general hospital. And essentially what they did was the workhouse hospital and the general hospital basically drew a line down the middle of Belfast. And any cases that were on one side of the line went to the Union Workhouse Hospital. And any cases that lived on the other side of the line went to the general hospital. So they kind of just divided it up down the middle. Um, and that does seem to work. Um, there was a slightly higher mortality rate during this outbreak because you know, people's immune systems were not as robust as they had been in 1832. Um, but Belfast did relatively well compared to other urban areas um, in terms of how it dealt with the, the cholera outbreak. And what we see is that the guardians were especially proactive because they had this plan in place beforehand, 
um, they'd actually been taking steps before they were told to. So the poor law, the workhouse system was managed by the poor law commissioners, um, kind of an overarching body. And the commissioners did eventually send instructions as to what to do. But by the time they sent those instructions, cholera had already been in the workhouse for, for weeks. So what the Belfast Guardians had done was just preempt that. Um, and the things that they were doing, things like trying to improve ventilation, trying to improve the, the water supply um, and keeping people separate once they or once they develop symptoms was actually working um, to some extent. Uh, they also applied to the poor law commissioners for loans to extend the hospital to provide even more relief because the hospital was constantly overcrowded at this stage um, and they were knocked back. They weren't allowed to get any of the government loans because Belfast was considered to be a very wealthy area um, and the government actually said if we give you a loan then we can't say no to anybody else because everybody thinks that Belfast is this wealthy, very prosperous part of the country. Um, your union is too well managed uh, so you can't get any extra help. So uh, they were kind of restricted in some ways. Um, and what we know is that a lot of the decisions that the workhouse was making during the famine years were actually being taken by a very small proportion of the guardians. There was um, a, a few who were very active uh, at this stage and quite a number, there was two or three at this stage that were practicing physicians as well. So they were making kind of informed choices with knowledge about what the disease was actually like. Um, and how best to, to counteract that. How did the role of the workhouse in medicine change over the rest of the 19th century? So my research kind of focuses on the, the early part of the workhouse uh, life. So I kind of look at the first decade, but picking up after the famine, the, the, medical, really, the medical side of the workhouse becomes more and more import, important, really. So in 1851, the Medical Charities Act was passed and this gave unions responsibility over the dispensary system as well. So there had been a system of dispensaries, which the modern equivalent would be kind of a GP surgery slash chemist. So it was a place where you got, went if you were a little bit unwell, um, but not quite needing hospital treatment. And you would get advice, you would get treatment. Um, there is a system, but like I said, it's very uh, rough. It's very, um, the, the dispensaries are often in locations that aren't really that accessible for the huge proportion of the population. Uh, and after seeing how the giving unions responsibility for infectious diseases had gone, um, there was a move to, well, we should put dispensaries under this system as well. Um, and in the rest of Ireland, there's kind of a lot of opposition to this idea, particularly in Dublin. Um, they are not happy with the idea of putting dispensaries under the control of the workhouse guardians. But in Belfast, again, quite unusually, they welcome this. Um, and they had accepted by this stage the, the role of the poor law in providing medical relief. And I think that that is probably because there was this pre-existing network um, that had been working together, charities and hospitals. And then the workhouse was built, the workhouse kind of 
was forced into the middle of this network, but didn't just take over. And none of these charities or organizations disbanded immediately once the workhouse was built. So they actually worked with the workhouse, um, with the guardians. And I think that's probably why Belfast was unusual in accepting the, the Medical Charities Act. Um, so that was the kind of the first <clears throat> step after the famine. Um, then we have some more changes in the 1860s. So in 1862, the workhouse infirmaries, the kind of hospital within the workhouse and their fever hospitals opened up to non-workhouse residents. So you didn't actually have to live in the workhouse to get that relief. Um, and this was part, partially to try and remove the stigma of being a pauper, of having to give up everything and live in the workhouse, which was still an awful place to be. Um, so it meant that people could avail of the treatment without actually having to, to live there. Um, through the dispensary system that they set up, they introduced compulsory vaccination um, in the 1860s as well. Uh, and the vaccination program was, was really successful um, against smallpox among the poor. In the Belfast workhouse, um, they started to expand and convert um, buildings. So they converted the old school building into a bigger infirmary at the end of the 1860s. Um, they also eventually developed um, a building that was just to treat the mentally ill, um, which was called Windsor Hospital. Um, and around this time throughout Ireland, the workhouses and the workhouse hospitals are kind of used as a training ground for nursing. Um, so there is no degree or no qualification in nursing at this stage, but people are kind of getting their hands dirty um, by helping out in these hospitals. In other parts of Ireland, it's orders of nuns that are acting as the, the nurses. Um, in Belfast, that's not the case, but um, it is similar to other parts of Ireland where that's how people kind of train to be nurses. Um, and we see that because Belfast Workhouse actually builds a nurse's home for the, the nurses to live in um, in 1892. It also then builds its own maternity block, kind of taking over the work of the line in hospital also at the end of the 19th century. Um, and really by the end of the 19th century, the, the workhouse system and all of its kind of attendants um, are really the, the primary form of, of healthcare for a lot of people. Um, they're the only thing that a lot of people can afford, um, which makes them really important and is why whenever the workhouse system, the poor law is dismantled in the 20th century, a lot of the workhouses then became hospitals because that's essentially what they had been doing for years anyway. So at the Belfast City Hospital, um, the only surviving parts of the workhouse are kind of part of the old fever hospital at the workhouse um, and the, the second school building that they built, which are still visible. Um, and you can still, I don't know if they're still used. Um, I was in one years ago, uh, but they're still there. You can still see the original uh the original brickwork and everything. Robin, how can people find out more about your work? Well, um, I have a, a chapter in a book that's coming out later this year, which um, is about the Belfast Charitable Society. So it's called The First Great Charity of This Town. And the chapter uh, that I wrote for it is really looking at this public health network before the introduction of the workhouse. So it goes into a little bit more detail um, about all those charities and about the role of the poor house. Um, 
I'm also teaching um, a few classes on particularly Belfast um, history uh, through the Open Learning Programme at Queen's. Um, so open learning classes are usually held in the evenings um, and they don't require kind of any academic background. Um, we have a wide range of, of students and I'm hopefully going to be teaching one um, on Ulster history in general and another one in January time on being poor in 19th century Belfast and kind of looking at a lot of these issues and how they overlap. Um, I'm also doing some talks for the Belfast City Council, which are available online about the city cemetery and its per ground. Um, so kind of the end destination for a lot of the per um, in the 19th century, unfortunately. Um, and if anybody ever sees somebody with long hair, probably wearing pink, um, traipsing up and down Donegal Road, that's me because that's where the, the original workhouse building still stands. Um, and where I think I've found the, the site of the workhouse graveyard, um, which I'm very excited about and has involved a lot of taking photographs of random bits of wall um, over the past few months. That's brilliant. Thank you so much, Robin, for joining us. That was a really, really interesting episode. Um, so thank you for sharing your work today. Thank you for having me.